0: I'm Will Levice. He's Eric LaVille. You're tuning into LaVise and LaVille, where we tell it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective. So let's get right to it. Now, today's show is certainly going to be a topic that we're going to talk about often, and that is reparations. Absolutely. Well, what's triggered this? So Evanston, Illinois, is among one of the early cities that have first made an effort to provide reparations for African-Americans in the community. Um, They've got this $10 million plan, of which the first phase is to give 16 residents $25,000 each for home repairs and property costs. Um, It prioritizes residents who lived in the city from 1919 and 1969 who suffered housing discrimination after 1969. So proponents of this say the initiative is designed to be a start they know it's not a cure-all, but it's a start to motivate Evanston and other cities to do much more. And critics say funding homeownership at these low levels will not address systemic racism. So you're talking about in Evanston, you got a city of population of about 76,000 people. African-Americans are 12,000 of that. And you're talking about starting with numbers around $25,000 each yeah. home repairs and property costs. Now, um, absolutely, when you look at the history of African-Americans in this country <laughs> and how this nation was built on the free labor of African-Americans and primarily as well as indentured servants of other groups, but built on the premise of if I can have labor that I don't have to pay for, then all of the profit and all of that is just gravy upon gravy upon gravy. And then you've got institutions such as universities. Georgetown is one that is admitted. The selling of African bodies of human beings actually was critical to Mm -hmm enabling Georgetown and other institutions, schools like it, to survive and thrive to where Georgetown has, you know, endowments that dwarf, you know, all HBCUs, you know. So even some some small countries, (laughs) total GDP. (laughs) You're talking about built on a system of exploiting human beings, not compensating them and now we're looking at having these kind of programs where we're sort of struggling with $25,000 16 we got to make a start after after um you know 400 plus years i mean it just seems i i got to fall on the critic side of saying that this is just a drop in the bucket that can actually potentially undermine The reparations movement, because if you don't go big, if you don't really go honest, uh, how are you ever going to get to the point where you're going to be really doing something that's impactful? If you're just doing a little drip here, a drip there. And not really getting at the root cause, as I said, which is systemic racism.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that reparations, this is a concept that is not new. Mm -hmm. It's something that we're going to be talking about for a very long time. Keep in mind that the reparations that we're speaking of, as you said, is for people, African Americans, that built this country for free. 247 years of free labor. And if we're talking about, you know, Juneteenth in Texas, a little bit longer. You know, so these are, you know, these are people, and we both come from these people, uh, who... Paid the price to build the country of the United States of, of America, to be the economic juggernaut that it is today, the cultural uh, beacon that it is today in influencing the world all through African-Americans, all for free. There we paid and built this country with our blood, with our sweat, with our tears, and with our lives. Chattel, we were property. And we were the property that cultivated this property. We were property that created ideas to create better industrial equipment and instruments in order to perpetuate the continued economic driver of agriculture. We were the property that created beautiful music, beautiful food, beautiful art, birth beautiful children, and also were the wet mothers to the owners of this property. So with that, African-Americans not only deserve reparations, we are due reparations. And on top of that, the question is how much? I don't think too much is too much because of what we meant to this country. So you're talking 247 years. Then on top of that, we're talking another 100 years of what we call Jim Crow and legalized segregation. That's suppressing the rights Legal rights, civil rights, being able to execute property, ownership rights, educational rights, you know, and just rights of freedom for 100 years. So it wasn't until 1964, 1965
0: that we actually became citizens.
1: (laughs) That's it. You know, not only when you say became citizens, I'm glad you mentioned it. We became citizens with the full force and power and enforcement of the United States law. Right. The Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s and which really ended in 1970. So that's why I say that we've only as African-Americans, even though we've been here since 1619, we've only had 54 years of the ability to operate fully as American citizens in order to have what we call the American dream. But no. let, me go back to, let me go back to reparations real quick, Will, because where did this idea come from? Where did it come from? It came out of the idea of when slaves were freed and then ma- made citizens that, we, that they needed some economic uh, arm to stand on, which was right. So therefore, for past wrongs, every family were to get ownership of 40 acres and a mule. Right. The significance of that is 40 acres is land that you can till and create agricultural products to sell. Also, it's property that you can own and build wealth and pass down from generation to generation. That mule livestock was really the most important uh, aspect next
0: to the land that you can own. There were no cars during that time period. Yeah, that's like the mule is like having a car now, right? Or maybe you, maybe like a having a cell phone. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah actually, yeah. actually, it's like having a having a work truck. You know, <laughs> you got a mule. You can now use that mule to carry items. You can use that mule to till the land and the like. Right. And of course, of course, other livestock such as chickens, such as cows and and pigs and things of that nature that help to bring in revenue, <laughs> to sustain you. So what happened was we never got that out of out of Reconstruction because Reconstruction was cut short, which I think was the most productive periods, one of the most productive three-year periods in our country. Reconstruction was deconstructed.
0: Right.
1: Oh, man. It it took 100 years to deconstruct it. And we're still reconstructing from the deconstruction of Reconstruction.
0: Now, one one of the things I would say about what Emerson has done is looking at the issue of housing because... What often happens is that when you talk about reparations, people get into this argument about, well, slavery was so far way back then, how many people are alive that were actually enslaved so that they can be repaired from having that experience? Or you'll hear people saying, well, the Civil War was fought very much over slavery, you know, some would say, well, it was just states' rights, but that it was fought over slavery, and that was Americans' reckoning of its original sin. And then, like you said, Reconstruction period was put in place. So there were attempts to remedy slavery. But one of the things that, and why I say that they, in Evanston, you could argue that they're on the right track, because when you look at housing, laws and housing policy in the United States, especially, you know, around with the New Deal. And right. we're talking about the nineteen late 40s and 50s and 60s and how African-Americans were systematically blocked from being able to own homes and the issue of redlining and not being able to get loans for homes while white communities were literally built by the federal government. I mean, there are cases after cases like, for example, Richmond, California, which people you rarely hear about Richmond, California, but during the World War II and the defense industry out there and then pulling people to come out for jobs, they were literally building housing for people to work in the defense industry, but it was for whites having quality housing, that they can acquire and build wealth while blacks were relegated to substandard housing. So you had, so you have these different examples that you can point to where people still are living or their near descendants are living and you can point to and add some remedies. But when you're talking about, you know, $25,000, I mean, it's, it's almost again, Showing the the lack of valuing the black life when you look at the wealth gap that has been created started from slavery, and then, as you eloquently pointed out, after slavery is over, that was that still wasn't enough. It's, the attack was still on. There was the deconstructing of reconstruction and the black codes and and Jim Crow and legal segregation for generations again, more. So, to to remedy this in a piecemeal kind of fashion, rather than really taking a serious look at how to get at systemic racism and how to get at uh, really policies that will really build wealth in a real serious way. In other words, what we've heard Martin Luther King talk about, what we've heard Jesse Jackson talk about—a Marshall Plan type approach. I mean, we did it just recently in 2008 when it was talking about bailing out the banking industry. We That's took right. a serious look at this situation and how it was impacting the economy and took a serious, comprehensive billion dollar approach to remedy the situation, to help fix the situation. So it just seems like, again, this as well-meaning as it may be for some of the people, because I wouldn't question some of the sincerity, especially if some of the Black folks are involved, but also well-meaning whites as well. I don't question the sincerity, but right. to come at such low numbers when we have a deeper, more serious yeah. problem that really needs to be more comprehensively dealt with, I, I don't see where this is really going to help to advance yeah. that cause.
1: Well, Will, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that, because one of the professors... Uh, who was studying this uh made a statement and said that perfection in this situation perfection is the enemy of good. Right. And, and it really just uh sums up everything that you just talked about. Where, you know, where when is enough enough? You know, is, is enough is I mean we really can't monetize because of what we've gone through. But let me go back before I address that about the fact when you mentioned some people may say, well slavery was so long ago. Hmm. Well If you lost, if if someone caused you to lose your arm, right, one of your limbs 50 years ago, even though you've learned to live without it, it doesn't take away the harm that your arm, your limb was taken away. You know, it doesn't matter how long ago it was. If you don't remedy your wrong. you know, it's still there.
0: Well, you know, some people just tell you, well, Come on, Clavel, just get over it, man. Just, you don't get, have over right? just get over it." Right.
1: <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's always just get over it when it's you that's the one that caused, or your your group caused one other group, uh, right. be under it, and you're telling us to get over it. Right. The other thing is when you benefit from it, it's nothing to say get over it because you don't want to deal with it, and that's where guilt comes in. But we're not going to deal with that part because reparations is in is an issue. And it's going to happen. It's not going anywhere. Because, again, if you don't make amends for your wrongs, they're still wrong. That's why you have to make amends for it. That's why people go to, you know, that's why in the 12-step program, you know, they say, hey, what do you have to do, you got to go do what? Hmm. You got to go make amends. No matter how long ago it was, you got to go make amends. So with that, if we move forward, what is that? what does that look like? So keep in mind, Evanston, Illinois is a municipality, a town in the in the state of Illinois. It's not the federal government. It's not the state. It's a city. It's a it's a municipality. This is part of a re- resolution of investing $10 million to the 12,000 Black residents of Evanston. And I think this is really will, real if, if we're honest about it. This is a test group, right? This is a test group that kind of shows us how reparations can work. So we're going to get some good things that come out of this. We're, we're going to get some things that come out of this that are not that didn't work as effective. So with that being the case, this $25,000 for homes in order to build uh, for repair and also to buy homes is the start of uh, reparations because, as we mentioned, most people in America, you know, outside of the 0.5% that was mentioned in federal legislation to tax that make over $50 million. Now, I don't know if you're in that group or not, Will, or some of our listeners, their party at 0.5 percent, but the other 99.5 percent. Our greatest uh, piece of wealth is our home. Our greatest—that's the—that's that is the—that is the asset that we have that we can borrow money off of. We can leverage. We can do all of that, right? Yeah. So, so with that, it helps to build wealth. And then they also mentioned that they're not the federal government, and they realize that systematic racism also took place not just on the federal level and the state level, but on the local level. So this is $10 million over a course of X amount of years for 12,000 residents, would represents less than uh, 1% of Black population, right? Because you look at African-American population, we're about at 40, 40 to 45%, right, between right. 40 45 depending on how some people categorize as more than one race. But so if you look at that, let's see what happens with this 12,000. And I think that's going to start to show us that reparations can work in the way that we believe it can. It is due, first of all, and that we could create it in a process to where we now start to build generational wealth as opposed
0: to a simple one-time payment. So are you saying that in in, in a sense, this is this start Is a good approach To trying to get to A more serious More comprehensive uh, Reparation package I mean is that what you Is that what you're thinking Because one of the challenges That I have with this Is I think about For example The war on poverty Mm -hmm. That happened under The Johnson administration And how there were A lot of Both And in my opinion A lot of the Things that were talked about Were really getting closer to the kind of comprehensive change and getting at the root causes of systemic racism and wealth inequality that would actually help to turn this thing around. But then what happened is that once those policies, and then there's a shift in administrations, and then this becomes a shift in tone, and it is backlash, that if you start and you don't come big, If you don't come serious, if you're not comprehensive, then it makes it very easy that just in a matter of a year or two, you get this shift back to, well, either the status quo or uh, a whole change in mindset that says, well, what we were trying to do, no, that's that's not the way to do it. That's not going to work. We see some of this, I think, about what happened with the Obama administration, where you talk about housing and wealth. And how, during the housing bubble and Obama coming into office, how much black wealth was zapped out during that housing bubble, and then I fought the Obama administration for policies that didn't really address the yeah. disappearance of that black wealth they they uh, they put in policies that helped to rebuild the banks, they put in policies that helped. Oh, yeah you know, the prop of the, you know, the auto industry is, and so forth. But when you looked at the amount of black wealth that was zapped out, and then what happens? Well, we had eight years where it wasn't really fully addressed. There were some things people weren't paying attention to it as closely in the first four years. And maybe as the, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus started talking about issues, others started bringing these issues up. Now you got a change in Congress. So he doesn't have the the ability to get certain things passed that he would have liked to. And then what happens after Obama administration is done? What did we get? We get this swing back in the opposite direction with the Trump administration coming in. So my challenge with this is. If you don't go comprehensive in the opportunity that you have to go comprehensive, then you just set yourself up for um a blowback and getting back to the to the status quo uh and possibly ending up three steps back from where you were when you started
1: well you mentioned some very good points i mean all of them are are very extremely valid they're fact based and the the answer to your question is we got to try mm-hmm. right i mean we talk about the obama years we talk about the other years i think the most productive years as it relates to really hitting this uh, issue head-on was, of course, the Linda B. Johnson years mm-hmm. with the civil rights uh, acts that he pushed through, which really, I mean, a lot of people, if you look at the LBJ story, uh, it really cost it. I mean, mm-hmm. he, you know, after he left office, you know, he he spiraled downhill quickly mm-hmm. uh, because of the amount of stress and the weight of the world on his shoulders. I don't think a lot of us understand how, how much when you actually, you know, people like King, people like Mandela, people like uh, Gundy, LBJ, and others, when you stand against the system, the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Uh, but I, I think we really missed a big opportunity. Of course, there's constructive criticism out there uh, where we could have done more. Uh, but I think this is the start, right? Uh, I think that really pushing the envelope forward, I think we're going to have some really substantive uh, tangible uh, answers to uh, uh, solutions to some of these issues in uh, the Biden administration. I think we're going to get there. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I don't think we're going to answer all of them. But I think this is a, I think Everson shows it. It's not just the federal government. We got to do this together. And I think with them leading the way, starting this, I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a push in the right direction. Corporations doing it. You mentioned Georgetown. Georgetown slaves that were sold. Let me let me let me show you how this hits home. Georgetown slaves that were sold in order to keep the university afloat were sold to a plantation down in your neck of the woods, down in Louisiana. Exactly in a place called Scott Scotlandville, Louisiana, hmm. which is basically the black part of Baton Rouge, hmm. which is the, the the community where Southern University and A and M College and Southern hmm. University Law Center is, which is where I went to both undergrad and law school. Mm-hmm. That's where it is. So they, the 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 chancellor of, well, actually the president of Georgetown came down to Baton Rouge and to the grave sites of where these slaves were actually buried, right, mm-hmm. and met with the families of some of the descendants that were there. So that's how that's how recent this stuff is. That's how real it is. Mm-hmm. And what they did, they established a scholarship. So a scholarship for the descendants to attend the university in which their ancestors were sold in order to keep it afloat. I mean, to me, that, that starts to speak change, right? That starts to go right to the problem where it all started and we start having
0: solutions. But how does a scholarship for some individuals compare to, the sale of human beings and the level of wealth that that sale led to. I mean, at some point, we have to start looking at um, these gaps and looking at the value, the true value. As much as it may be difficult to quantify numbers from back in the 1800s and looking at us now in 2021, we have to start looking at things in proportion and value, and say, a few scholarships compared to the amount of wealth that was able to be created as a result yeah. of that. I mean, I get again, it. it's, I mean, I get, it, Will. I get you, you got to you got to go into those endowments and come out with a chunk of something, a yeah. real value. Again, that's a Marshall Plan type of approach, yeah. a bailout of the auto industry or bail out of the banking industry type of approach or what we're facing now. I mean, I I agree with President Biden saying, look, we got to go big in terms of in- infrastructure and in terms of what we're going to do because you only get a few opportunities That's where it. things are aligned in such a way to get something really meaningful pushed through, especially when it's something of this magnitude. I mean, you're talking about just in a couple of years, as you said earlier about how much wealth has been tied up in people's homes and how that was just wiped out in the housing bubble in a couple of years for, you know, so many black, so many black families. That's so awesome. if you want to repair that, if you want to really get into reparations, you need to come as big with your with your repair as the damage was. Right. That's like, you know, okay, a couple of scholarships, you know, twenty five thousand dollars here, there, is like again, putting a band aid on that arm that you lost. But you on that all.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah but but Will it, it it starts the conversation. It starts the
0: ball rolling. And you know how with a ball how long are we gonna conversate. How long are we no, gonna no. conversate about this? <laughs> <We gonna> conversate <laughs> for 400 years. How long are we gonna conversate? Look, well
1: well again the conversation has started and the ball has started rolling, Evanston, Georgetown and other institutions. What I'm saying is is that I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. But I'm saying it started. And this is, the, this is the push, right? So you have these movements that start in pockets. And then the masses of the movement starts because people get a hold to it. And we we both know that's how movements start, man. It doesn't start from the top. It starts from the ground up. So I applaud what Everston's doing. I applaud what Georgetown has done. But I think you're right that at a certain point, we've got to boil it down to cash money payments, investment. And just like Stockton, California, and their experiment with the university uh, universal basic income, right. another uh, city that's doing it, uh, I think it's, uh, I forget which one it is, but there's another city that's doing it, maybe it's San Francisco, I saw it somewhere, but another city in California. But this is where the rubber meets the road, right? So of the wealth that institutions, now I believe, first of all, the country has to apologize for slavery. I think that's, that's number one. United States of America. And it has to be while a white president occupies the White House. It can't be anybody black or anything like that. Secondly, and it needs to be a resolution passed, it needs to be legislation passed, which puts it in stone, right? Secondly, what also needs to happen, like you said, is a Marshall Plan. I think that we are should start to look at where the vest vestiges of slavery affected individuals the most. And Jim Crow and the discrimination that we saw after the, the, the civil rights legislation, which we saw drugs flood our communities, which we saw all these redlining policies and housing discriminatory housing policies still continue. Then I think fourth wheel, what we have to do is we have to identify all the institutions that started in America, that were the foundations of America that benefited from slavery, they got to put some skin in the game. It's got to happen. Our universities, our companies that were started during that time period, they've got to put some skin in the game. And then lastly, the fifth thing that we have to do, I think we have to ensure that African-Americans, that the wealth that is coming down, that there is a plan in place to build and to continue generational wealth, because you already know what's going to happen. You're going to have the naysayers, you're going to have those that say, oh no, now they're getting all this money and, and white America say they're going to be left out. But we understand that systematic racism, this is our moment, this is our time, it's here, we can eliminate it, we can start to eradicate it. And one thing that America respects more than anything, and that's the power
0: of the almighty dollar. Well, the the, the power of the almighty dollar is exactly why if we're serious about fixing a problem, we know how to go big and fix the problem. Absolutely. And I think that this is another sign of really not being fully committed to fixing a problem. Why is it that when it comes to Black people, we got to have a conversation, we got to have a start? This conversation about reparations, you already broke down the history, you already talked about it. It's dating back to the Civil War. Absolutely. We're talking about reparations, Since then, so this is not a new conversation at all. And we seem to be in this generation now where we want to talk about things. We want to say, let's start the conversation. What do you mean? This is a continuum. This is not a new conversation. And we know how to, in this country, if we want to do something and really address an issue that's of critical concern, we know how to do it. When we wanted to build the interstate highway system. Did we just do a start in one state and one township? No, no, we need to go big because this system needs to be in place. So, you know, our tanks and so forth can be able to get from one side of the country to the other. And look at what it generated from there this whole interstate highway system with all of the economy that we can't even we can't even fathom life without getting on i95 or i10 or any of these any of these super highways so we know how to go big and to be effective when we have a problem that we take seriously in my mind when we're still talking about us having a conversation and we're taking a, a piecemeal approach that's a way of saying you know what we really are going to move with all deliberate speed, which essentially means we're not going to really jump in and change this. We're going to piecemeal it and drip, drip and maintain the status quo as long as possible. We want reparations, I think, from a moral standpoint. I think the apology is not as much of an importance to me as it is saying, let's go big. Let's see this as really being good for the economy and good for business. And let's do the Marshall Plan type approach that needs to be done, involving investment, involving housing. Let's go big. Let's do it. Absolutely. And, Will, I think what what we
1: as African Americans should do um, is stay locked into this issue because our time is now. The world now understands what the effect of European colonialism and systematic racism has done to not just Black Americans, but to the Black world. And the recognition is there. Now it's time for us to understand the history, accept the history, and then start to move toward, like you said, big solutions to these problems. And at the end of the day, I think that the apology is needed because what the apology does... Will What the apology does, it then starts to open the door to say this is, it legitimizes the solutions. Because when you recognize that there is a problem, the solutions flow much easier. Or it can mean I apologize and so what more do you want, right? <laughs> right. Well, I can tell you exactly what more that we want, but we'll talk about that on the next uh series. But we thank you again for joining us for this important discussion about reparation on Luis and Caville Follow us on Facebook, like and share, and also on our other social media. And
0: we'll see you next time, because to us, that's the way it is.